0: Today's topic is computational medicine. What the heck's that mean? Listen, find out. Welcome to Geekspeak. I'm Lyle Troxell. In the air and with me is Brian Young. Hey, Brian, how you doing? Hey, Lyle. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. You know, Brian, we talk a lot of stuff on the show, and most of the time we're not the experts in the field.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we regret that.
0: (laughs) And we, you know, crawl through a news story kind of doing a translation. Every once in a while, I make a giant mistake. I think on the last episode, we were talking about propulsion uh, using ions. The story was about a plane with no moving parts that is flying in atmosphere. And this, of course, is a model airplane or model plane with no propeller, no jet or anything like that. It was just using um, high voltage charge over its over an area of its surface that would cause air molecules to move across it. And we, in that story, brought up ionized propulsion in space travel, which is very clearly a different thing. And we kind of talked about it being a different thing, but it was muddied and confusing. And the big important aspect of this is when you're using ion propulsion in space (laughs) where there is no atmosphere that's right you are projecting your ions from your craft and throwing them behind you and that is the only propulsion mechanism you have however in this plane situation where you have high voltage differential you're actually causing uh, wind to flow through you're actually moving the air past you like those fans
1: so just like a jet engine creates thrust through compressing the air and throwing it out really fast uh, i think is that accurate yeah. And of course, that's using a turbine. It's using a
0: spinning thing to push the air. Right. And in this situation, it's using it's using very, something that you can think of like ions moving because you were just dealing with the charges of the air molecules. But in any case, it has mass from the environment, very different than an ion drive that has its own mass. So that was a correction I needed to make.
1: Do you know how you can be leave a record of 100% correctness throughout your life? Why? How? Be, be willing to accept corrections and, and, and change the record. <laughs> if I didn't do that, I would be um, sorely adding to the confusion in the world.
0: But every once in a while, we get to have an expert in a field. And today we have Robert Smith. And Robert Smith is a technical project manager from UCLA Health. And Robert, welcome to
2: GeekSpeak. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and also, thanks for calling me an expert. I don't know if I'd go that far, but um, thank you very much.
0: Yeah, well, if you make a mistake, you can also correct it. Just email us like, <laughs> next show and we'll, we'll get a correction in. So you actually kind of work on – well, one of the things you work on is personal medicine, personalized medicine. And I've watched House, so I know that personalized medicine is different than general medicine. But can you kind of give us a definition of what personalized medicine really means?
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, this word is used a lot right now. It's very, um, you know, à la mode, you may say. Um, Really, to me, personalized medicine comes down to looking at genetics, genetic data. So if you look at, you know, any uh, person – um, to get down to the lowest level, you can you you want to look at essentially their source code, which mm-hmm. is their genetics. Um, so we work on essentially developing tools to read genetics. Something that is you know today uh, like a book where we know zero point two percent of the words, uh, what they mean. We're trying to learn more and more, yeah. and largely these are uh, tied to disease. So we want to find what codes for what and what goes wrong when you get a disease and how do we fix that <laughs>
0: all right let's fill in some of those what's um I mean, I understand the idea of, of sequencing a human being. Like, for a while, it was, like, kind of crazy we'd get to do that. Now we can just do that. And, in fact, you can send your, your, your DNA off to, like, 23andMe or something and have them sequence your entire genome. And then you're like, they go, here you go. And one of the caveats they have is this is not, can't be used for medical information. They, there's a separation of, like, this is entertainment only in some ways. And then I'm assuming that's because it's very hard to, for them to figure out what is um, actually predictable or not from you. So they're giving the information, but you can also take that sequence and you can give it to a doctor and they can look things up. Some of these, when you said there's a percentage of words we understand, what you're saying is even though it's easy for us to sequence our DNA, what that actually means in a clinical sense is actually hard to digest.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. So huge change in the medical field it happened in April 2003 when the Human Genome Project was finished. Yeah. Um, so they essentially had sequenced one person and that one guy became the reference Um, So he was the first person to be sequenced, and uh, our sort of journey into understanding what those A's, B's, T's, and G's mean uh, started there.
1: Okay, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, I've always tried to understand what the sequence means. Does that mean we have one person's entire DNA? We have the code for that one person? Um, That's what you're talking about by the first person who was sequenced.
2: Yes, exactly. And now... As Lau mentioned, 23andMe can sequence your genome uh, for I think ninety ninety nine dollars. They've got like like deals sometimes where it's half off. Yeah, a- and yeah, that's
1: yeah. equivalent to that first genome sequencing. Yes,
2: exactly. So if you think of the cost, the first person cost I don't know how many you <laughs> know, millions, millions. Cost. Yeah, um, and, and and now it's come down to about ninety nine ninety nine dollars or
0: something like that. And that is every base pair basically in your, in your chromosomes. Okay, yeah. so. Now, I understand that there's a very big difference between the expressed genome and the actual genome, um, but let's not get into that detail. Let's get into the detail of, like, when you have a sequence of a person and a do- how can this help a physician actually treat that person? What kind of signals do you get from it that say, oh, you're going to need this?
2: Yeah, so actually, going back to 23andMe, yeah. um, they, at the very beginning, they produced these health reports uh, that, uh, you know you know, sort of said that they were going to be able to give you your odds of developing a certain condition or what you may be predisposed to. Um, A few months after they released that, or maybe a year or so, uh, the FDA asked them to pull it back because it turns out that um, a lot of it is potentially unreliable. Um, So, you know, really technically what we're looking for when we are trying to analyze uh genetics and 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 now we're not only looking at sort of one person we have like hundreds of thousands of people and those are analyzed through studies called the genome-wide association study where you take a group from a population that for example has diabetes and you line them you essentially take them all and you line them up and you just see what's common between all of the diabetic patients versus a control group that, you know, doesn't have, or, you know, they should be random. So there can be. Some of them will and some of them won't. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you just look for association.
0: Okay. But that, that gives you predictability on what you might, um, what diseases might you might emerge, like if 23 you may try to do it originally, or even that you have a high probability of, or that you even have a disease. But how does this help you then cause treatment? Because, of course, knowledge is great, but it's better to actually help people after the fact.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there is a class of, of, of disease which are attributed to something we call Mendelian genes. And these genes are um, areas of the genome where you see a clear association to the point where you can essentially um, say that uh, these genes are causal for disease. Okay. Um, these are a very rare subgroup of um, genomic regions. Can you give us an example? Uh, yeah, so there is, for example, uh, I believe there's a disease called Huntington's, sure. um, where uh, there is a specific genomic region, which is common among everyone who has Huntington's, and if they don't have it, they definitely don't have the disease, and if they do have it, they definitely do. So that's an extreme example of, of one of those areas, but it turns out that actually very few diseases work this way, mm. and in reality, you have hundreds or thousands of genomic regions, which all contribute in part to causing the disease. So causality is a real big problem in looking at these studies because, you know, you'll have regions that have a ton of associations, but there'll maybe be a hundred different parts that are contributing. And
0: is this complexity the reason why machine learning is necessary for this environment to actually do things?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely, machine learning is 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 helping um, a lot, and and you know, even beyond genetics, there's a lot of even I'd say easier applications.
0: Um, well, uh, so let me back up with Huntington's disease. I've heard of it. It's not definitely not great, but is there anything you can do once you know a human being actually has this genome? You're not going to be able to modify their genome after they've been born, so or after they've been millions of cells, right?
2: Wow. <laughs> have you heard of CRISPR-Cas9?
0: I sure have. So go ahead and tell us what that is.
2: So I, 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 I mentioned that, you know, it's like a book, and maybe we have like 2% of the words that mean something. But it's, it's, it's almost as if the technology uh, has, has evolved uh, in the wrong order. Because we have this thing called CRISPR-Cas9, which allows us to edit, but we can't read it.
0: Really effectively edit.
2: Really effectively edit.
0: So it's like uh, someone that has ability to edit, but can't see.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So CRISPR is is a an enzyme that you can uh, train within a sort of a cellular environment. That uh, I'm, I'm I'm definitely not qualified to talk about how that actually works, um, but the point is that you can train it to identify a specific region of the genome and go on and attach to it, and then essentially snip the 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 segment um, and reinsert that you wanna something cut else. And reinsert yeah. something else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So could you potentially take a fully formed person that has uh, like Huntington's disease, and actually
2: modify their genome while they were alive? So, yes, theoretically, yes, you can. Theoretically, that doesn't like yet? So, we're, I mean, yeah, why isn't Huntington's like sure? <laughs> yeah, why don't right? we cure that
0: one? Yeah, exactly.
2: Um, and I think it's really to do with implementation within the health system. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, CRISPR is very, very Effective, but it's not 100% effective. And so to do something like this, you need 100% effectiveness, 100% precision in terms of what it can cut. You, what you, can don't, cut. you don't
1: want random mutations thrown into your editing?
2: No, you don't. And and it's kind of like maybe a black box to a certain extent. Is if you cut something that is maybe nearby, you had no idea that actually it was really important. So, you know, it could be deadly for the Exactly, yeah.
0: Exactly. Or very unknown consequences. So we're moving slowly in this field. Yes. How are we progressing to say, now we 're okay, now we can do this, and it, are we moving that direction
2: yeah, absolutely there really all the work around this is is focused on developing drugs that will target um, Ta- target this what the
0: gene is actually doing or target so to n- so not to modify the di- gene that 's not what we 're doing right now, right yeah exactly. okay, so' instead going, okay, everybody that has this disease has these qualities, and therefore what are they actually what is that quality producing in their system, and can we modify can we create a drug that will Inhibit that, or add that for the person that doesn't have it. That kind of mechanism is what we're doing right now.
2: Yeah, you know, so there's there's a few different approaches that it can take, but I think one really typical one is that, say, um, you know, a disease is caused by the underexpression of a specific protein, and um, we can see that because this region is modified and this it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't lead to the, the you know the um, the creation of the protein that's necessary mm-hmm. and maybe instead of cutting the gen, you know cutting out the genome and doing this like really high level stuff you could maybe then just give someone a supplement of the protein itself right right so then they wouldn't even need that and
0: that sounds in some ways like traditional medicine It's just that we're able to say, well, this giant population has it, and this other giant population doesn't, and therefore, what is different between these two populations? And we can detect quicker what different proteins they might need. But let's get back to the editing capability, because from a from a perspective, if if you for 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 Brian and I, if we both had something like hunting, let's let's talk about something else besides hunting. Let's make let's make up. I don't know pen cap disease. Okay, so both Brian and I have pen cap disease. It's very much a sequence of of um, DNA that causes this problem. No one else in the population has it. That you know, so we know exactly what it is. When we set up CRISPR to actually modify and edit it, it's going to succeed, but it might actually match against other parts of the DNA. But if you sequence my entire DNA. And you look exactly at the part you want to modify. The treatment for me and for Brian might be different to make sure that it's safe. But you theoretically could just mute, just edit that segment because you'd have enough data about me to know what was safe and what was not safe to edit. Is that is that true? Is that am I getting close to what we might be able to do?
2: Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think you're totally getting close. It's it's that that would be great. But I I, yeah, I, I would have to say that it comes back to that unknown. So if CRISPR is not hundred percent. Precise, um, then we could make a big mistake. Maybe not on you. Maybe we employ the exact same therapy, yeah. and it works great for you, but it kills Brian. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at. Well, and it's fifty fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, that's why we test on mice, and a lot of
2: uh, and we kill a lot of mice. Yeah, we kill, yeah, kill yeah, a lot of mice. I'm really, really, things. really sorry for the
1: mice. Okay. I can can, I, go to mice can I ask a really fundamental question about this CRISPR? Because I, I apparently don't know as much as you do, Lyle, and certainly not as much as you. When we talk about modifying the genes. There's a lot of cells in our body. Are we talking about modifying the genes in all of our cells, in just the cells that are going to continue to reproduce other cells? Hey, How does that work? So that's actually that's a that's a really fundamental uh,
2: question, and and I think it's one that I get a lot because there's not like one place in your body that you can just go tap the the code actually exists in every single cell. Yeah, um, and almost most cells uh, will divide and grow throughout. Your lifetime, so you know you will be born with a group of cells, and you'll you'll die with none of those originally. They're all sort of descendants of of. Um, so what it relies on is um, something going into a cell, and it's probably going to go into a ton of cells, and then go inside of the nucleus inside of the cell. Go into the nucleus, edit the DNA which is housed within there, and then that cell will become the first ancestor of this new line. And then this new line will d- will divide and grow and grow. And eventually you'll have a whole new population that's based on that.
0: This is actually why I started this conversation with, you can't really do this with a fully formed human because you do have to get it into all the cells that will be reproducing. And of course, the way you do that is modify a virus to just do that. But of course, now you're talking about a virus that has to infect effectively all of your cells. And that's challenging. So it'd be long-term treatment over time, time, time. But if you had two... P- two parents that wanted to mix their chromosomes have a child, then it would be relatively easy to modify the child prior to uh, their cells reproducing multiple
2: times. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's actually much easier to do it um, sort of before birth.
0: Right. And then the question is, well, why would you modify, get rid of this disease and this disease? Why wouldn't you just keep on mixing their chromosomes until you got to a point where are like, okay, we don't have any, we don't know of any diseases this, this cell combination is going to have, so let's let that person grow. Um, so relatively quickly, getting rid of diseases is actually not, or altering the genome to get rid of a disease of an already created cell becomes less and less interesting. But modifying it to do exactly the traits you want become creepily interesting. So let's have a really strong person that's really intelligent with purple eyes, that kind of thing, which, of course, is a long way out and something we probably don't have to worry about from a, from a, a moral perspective yet. Um, But let's talk back about disease because it seems like all of us are like, well, a human being has a disease. We should probably try to fix that. So besides CRISPR, can we put CRISPR down for a little while? If I take a giant population and I look at them and I go, oh, this population has diabetes and this other population has some diabetes but not really because you're looking at just a sample set. The diabetes population, you're trying to now figure out a way to treat that not by insulin like we do now by adding insulin but something better than that. What kind of things – is personal? Because it seems to me that's still a large population. How is that personalized medicine?
2: So people are talking about personalized medicine and genetics seems to be what it's all about. But what happens when genetics doesn't deliver on the promise? So we've already started the conversation. We're all talking about personalized medicine, but it it turns out that true personalized medicine is too hard to achieve right now because we can't actually read the data and I I, i would love to talk about maybe just one thing in particular which is something that confounds the reading it's something called population structure um and so as i said in the beginning 2003 you have the first human genome so it's like great we can all start analyzing this data um and a lot of the first Publications that came out were reporting these crazy associations where, like, hey, we're we're finding causality, like, all around the place. Um, This is great. Um, And a few years later, all these researchers came out and said, hey, wait a second. We found something that's totally uh, going on here. Like, this is very sort of spurious, all these associations. Um, Because it turns out that people don't mate truly randomly. You're going to be mating with someone who's actually... Kind of in your region, you know, geographically, or someone you know, Um, and what happens when you have non-random mating is that you end up having a ton of parts of your genome which are inherited together, and this is actually because of a cellular mechanism. You may have I don't know if you remember it from sort of you know high school biology. Uh, I think I learned it there, but it's called crossing over. So your chromosomes when they divide in the nucleus, end up sharing some genetic information through crossing over. What this essentially means is that a lot of your genetic material is inherited together. Mm -hmm. And so there are parts that are inherited just because they're close on your genome. um, They're inherited together. So then if you look at the whole sort of human population, you want to do kind of like a randomized study, you have these populations that have this underlying structure to their to their data where you'll see associations when you're, you're doing these, these randomized trials, but they won't actually be a result of the fact that, you know, they're causal for whatever disease you may be looking for, but because they come from a population that has a structure. A that,
0: similarity in some, some sense.
2: That confounds all of this. So that's, that's just like one okay. major problem for. Yeah,
0: but if you're taking a random population um, of a certain area And then you're also taking – from that same population, you're finding people that are – have a certain disease and you're looking for. Wouldn't the structure exist also in the random population? Or is it that you actually – you're actually selecting for a population similarity when you say, I want all the people that have this disease?
2: Yeah. Okay. I see see what you mean. Um, So the – I mean, a lot of this comes down to just sort of the practical: how how we end up doing it. So we're we're using databases. Mm-hmm. You mentioned twenty three and Me in the beginning; they have the largest database of human genetic data. Um, but it turns out everyone who signed up for 23 and me are kind of, you know, s- similar people. Yeah, um, they had
0: 99 dollars to throw away. Yeah, exactly. We, we don't <laughs> <laughs> we,
2: Yeah, and they were like really caring about their health and
0: stuff. Right, and they're okay with the privacy problems. Yeah, yeah. you know, and
2: they all probably live right. in the Bay Area. And stuff like that. Right,
0: and they heard about it, right? <laughs> they heard about it from the same commercial which is run at a cer- certain sports game and therefore they're selecting a population. So you're saying that your your base set of people just happen to be very similar.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And which is kind of, you know, if you think about it, sort of, again, a kind of like equality, um, ethical, you know, when, you know, as these things progress, the problem is that we are going to be able to treat diseases in white European populations better than populations that we don't have a lot of data on. on. And that said, keep in mind that every human, their genetic source code is 99.9% identical.
0: Right. Yeah. So we're not really looking at that. We're looking at, of course, the similarities for a disease set versus a non-disease set. It seems to me, especially since we're 99% similar, you'd think that those would be easy to detect what the differences would be. And these, so these population structures actually cause a lot of oddity to it. Does that mean that certain population areas have certain diseases and other population areas don't have certain diseases?
2: Yeah, no, for sure. There are okay. definitely populations that have a higher propensity for certain diseases, All right. such as diabetes.
0: Are we are the way we classify diseases is really symptomatic, right? So, um, you look at a, you, you hear from somebody, these are the problems I'm having, and maybe they die, and you look at them, maybe dissect them, and everything, and you go, oh, this is the disease they have, and 50 people might have done that. And you call that all the same disease. But then in your, when you start working at it from a genetic level and how the implementation occurs and stuff, those actually might be different diseases having the same symptom case. Is that happening?
2: Totally. Actually, thank you very much Lyle, for bringing that up <laughs> okay. because this is what we spend our time doing. So we're not, you know, we're, we're trying to look for, for uh, you know, these causal regions, but, you know, we can't really do that. So why don't we then try to find subtypes? You know, in the past, you. You know, doctors classified a ton of diseases that we now see as very distinct mm-hmm. um, under one umbrella. Yeah. And so we think maybe we suffer from that today in the medical field still.
0: I would I would assume that was the, that's the major problem. I mean, if you just think about all death is actually caused by the heart stopping, right? And you say, okay, death's the heart stopping. Causing solutions based off of that is not effective compared to other solutions like, oh, this person had no nutrients in their system, and this person, other person, they had a giant loss of blood. Like, those are very different causes of death. So it seems to me the most important thing right now is to reclassify every disease as close as you possibly can, and then maybe you'll get uh, better results on pattern matching without these structural problems emerging. It seems to me, though, that you, if you're seeing these population of structures based around these diseases, you might actually detect two different diseases because the population structures seem to be very highly, there might be very two large population structures in one disease set, if you will. Could you then actually find, oh, these are two different diseases? Is that kind of happening in your field?
2: Yeah. So the, po- the population structure side is is something that is making it hard to know what is really the causal mechanism behind it because there's it creates noise, mm-hmm. essentially, in s- simplest terms. Um, and you mentioned subtypes, I think. You know, Brian and I, we were talking about autism earlier.
1: Yeah, Brian's um,
0: day job is actually working on that. If you want,
2: Do you want to talk about that real quick, Brian, since it's brought up?
1: Uh, yeah, I can, I can bring up just some few points, which uh, I do iOS development, but um, I'm working on the client app for the company that um, – for a company for the last six months. And they are using machine learning to try to diagnose autism in – uh, ages of kids that are much lower than when they're typically diagnosed now, um, and it's very young age, very, 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 young, very young ages. Yeah. So uh, there's data that we, the company thinks they can get it down into the matter of uh, a year, yeah. year and a half.
0: You're at like eighteen months right now, and it seems like autism is a great example of like kind of tricky because if you take a kid out of the natural environment and you put them in a doctor's office and you try to diagnose them, they're going to operate, they're going to function differently than they would at home. And so in some sense, the environment's going to cause it to be hard to diagnose. So it makes a lot of sense to kind of bring that closer into the home. And that's the kind of work you're doing.
1: Uh, well, yeah, certainly traditional autism diagn- diagnosis does try to uh, get at the behaviors of the kid in a clinical environment. Yeah. And um, certainly seeing them in the rest of the environment would help.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's a bit of, you guys were talking about this before you brought it up Robert. Yeah.
2: Um, but I was just going to say that autism, it's such a great disease to look at subtyping for because you have so many different types of autistics. You have, you have, you have also, you know, like savants, which yeah. also are sort of part of this group. And when you have sort of one umbrella term, I think, you know, I should be clear that autism is already pretty well um, subdivided. So there's not, you know, one treatment for, for many different types of people. Who but excited. it's relatively
0: recently subdivided. Yeah. Right. It's within the last 50 years. Prior to that, we we're like, one thing. Yeah. Okay. So you, were, but you brought that point up, you guys, that you were talking about that, the subgrouping, is that.
2: Are we going to find out more about the separation of the subgroups? So it's like, you know, if we think about personalized medicine, we're like on our way there. It's going to be something that unfortunately we'll probably keep going to talk about a long time because like we're going to be constantly making improvements. And getting just subtyping is like the next step. Okay. So so so, let's say we can't identify, you know, we can't know everything that genetics is telling us. Um, but at least we can get a little bit closer by, you know, helping the categories be a little bit more precise. So that's like one step towards personalized medicine. Um, and, an I mean, a big part of it that we can't forget is that there's the environment. And the environment interacts with genetics to produce profoundly different results. So you can't just look at it as an isolated, closed problem. Mm-hmm. Like if we read the genetics, we'll know what's going to happen to the person. It's not an outlaw. like that. It's kind of like if you think of like a, like a chemical reaction. You take someone's someone um, who has you know obviously a specific code, and then you put them in an environment, and then they react together to produce the the outcomes that you the yeah we they, call them we, uh, phenotypes they, yeah
1: yeah. This is where that term "expressing the genes comes from.
2: Yes. Yes. And there's you know, there, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, you know, that since the field is so not necessarily um, you know, the case is not closed on how to best approach it, there's a lot of groups who are doing association studies just between for expression. So um, uh, the ones I was, I was talking about before are called uh, genome-wide association mm-hmm. studies. We and that in short, it's a GWAS, and we also have TWAS. Which is transcriptome wide association studies. What does that mean? So instead of looking at what all the source code is, you know, it goes from the, sort of the way biology works is you have genetics, and then you have um, parts of the genome which are actually genes, which are actually expressed, and by expressed I mean they um, end up having proteins being created from that region. So a region is red, you know, a bunch of like some molecular equipment straps onto it and starts pumping out like, you know, chemicals, all these proteins. Mm-hmm. And that's the expression. So that's 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 the transcriptome. So mm-hmm. if you did only transcriptome-wide studies, that mean that we would only be looking at um, the coding part right. of the genome. The
0: part that's actually expressing. Do we know all the regions that... Have expression? Or yes. We do.
2: Totally know that.
0: Oh, okay. So that seems to me you'd want to just turn off, not look at everything that isn't being expressed, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, when I was coming, sort of first entering the field, I was like, yeah, that seems like a great idea. Just look at that. Um, um, but it turns out that most of the variation for disease are actually in non-coding regions. So what the heck is going on? Well, what the, so, wait, so, okay. like,
0: what the heck's going on, Robert? <laughs> Do you not know?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's really not known. And, and the um, stipulation is that the they are regulatory. So they regulate how much is transcribed.
0: Oh, interesting. So you might have a protein being generated from a region that's expressing, and you might have another thing that's basically, if that exists, that one expressing system won't express as much, or it will express none. It Mm -hmm. turns, it controls. That's what we mean regularly. Yes,
1: exactly. So uh, we've had many conversations on Geek Speak about genes over the years. And um, I just want to see if I, I understand this right. That area of the genome that is not expressing proteins used to be called junk DNA. Is that right? Yes. And now we're like, oh, whoa, it's not junk. Don't throw it out. It's important.
0: <laughs> so that's why you're keeping it in your models then. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. In fact, I think in high school I, I had to memorize that that meant junk DNA. Yeah.
0: And yeah, so <laughs> you had to I, unmemorize I, that. Yeah, yeah, very quickly. I think, I think it's kind of – it's surprising that you know for a long time we thought, well, it's going to be so impossible to sequence the genome. And then we did it. And everyone was like, and of course, once we do, we'll know everything about the person and everything will be solved. And then we did it and we're like, yeah, it was actually different problems. But it's it's funny to me that the problem space for so long was we just need a sequence, we just need a sequence. Then we did that and we're like, oh, now we just need to learn what that means. It seems, to, what what is right now that next barrier that we're like, oh, we'll get it then? Like, is there like another line that we've just drawn the sand and go, oh, that's the target at this point?
2: What we think now is that... If we can add different layers of information about people on top of genetics, maybe we can learn some more. And so what I mean by that is what other kind of like biomedical information can we get from people? One of them is electronic health records. So one approach is to take electronic health records, put them on top of genetics and see if we can like get a little bit more power. You're, you're talking
0: about adding the electronic health records of an individual to your machine models to yes. see if you can pull something else out. Exactly. For example, they might have gone to the doctors a lot for something completely unrelated. Like, you know, wow, this, this person has a lot more cavities than anybody else. Look, the population seems to correlate yeah. and we learn something else. You don't really mean electronic health records. You mean large, more population other than the genome about these people.
2: Yes, yes, yeah, no. <laughs> You're
0: just translating that into practicality of how do I get that? Well, electronic Yes. records.
2: Yes, yeah, okay. no, yeah. So,
0: when it, so why don't we just – couldn't we just do this magic thing for you and just like go, hey, everybody, let's solve health. Everybody gets sequenced and everybody wears like a device that watches their health and like an Apple Watch, you know, recording all the data. And we get that into one system and then, you know, we solve aging.
2: Yeah, so I, I well,
0: problem solved. We're done. Well, Let's do that.
2: <laughs> well, two questions. Two questions. One is, how do you feel, Lyle, about sending? Because I, I, I personally have not been sequenced. Um, I, I haven't I, either, and I'm, I'm really close to pull the trigger. How I'm do curious. you? Oh, my how do you feel really about made that? Me. Oh, really? You're
1: done? <laughs> yeah. Now I'm hearing all these stories of these uh, various criminals being found through uh, genetics. And I'm like, oh, well, well, as long well as long you're, you're not a criminal. You're well, fine. I'm not, I'm not, but
0: what's gonna happen?
2: And there's no. You're not worried about insurance or anything like that. Oh, I'm, worried I'm worried about worried.
0: insurance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and no, also no, pre, pre-existing condition. Yeah, since birth you had this disease. You're screwed.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. And then, and then you would give it away for your kids too, because they'll, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely think about the kids. So that's so that's a question. But like, just to get back to what we were saying, essentially what I'm talking about is just throwing more data. Yeah. At the model and machine learning and neural networks is like a great tool to to implement this kind of approach because you can like a a neural net you can really throw a lot of data at it and um sometimes it produces pretty amazing results
1: so that more data basically takes the place of the environment so you've got you've got your genes you've got the genes already going through the machine learning system and you need something to represent the environment so you can find that signal yes and there's
2: so the limits of Data personal data collection um, in the U.S. is pretty intense because you know uh, health systems don't want to share it because there's crazy privacy concerns and they definitely don't want to share it with tech companies. Um, but in China, um, there's a actually. Several companies that are are really interesting, um, just based on you know their what they're trying to do. <laughs> when you remove privacy, when you remove privacy, exactly what what's possible. Um, so yeah, there's this company in China, I think it's called iCarbon X, who they want to collect everything. So they are going to give you sensors. They're they're even going to give you a, a little monitor you can put in your toilet to analyze your microbiome. Then you and,
0: have to get toilets for everybody in the family.
2: because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, their view is like you're flushing away a ton of valuable. Uh, well, that's a lot of data us. we don't we don't pay attention to at all.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. So um so yeah, if you keep on throwing more So what you're
0: saying is right now we have more data about personalized medicine around uh Caucasians in North America. Mm-hmm. But soon it will be Chinese in China. And then we'll know everything about health from there because there's so much more data coming in.
2: I mean, that's a potential. So you said before, why Someone doesn't everyone just do get sequenced? Why does everyone we'll just get sequenced? And then and then that'll be great. So that maybe that is an outcome in China. Maybe you know, there's a big movement towards everyone adopts this. Boom, they don't care about the privacy the way that we do, and um, and then I mean. You know, I think that the outcome would be a lot of great information for humanity so, as a whole. But
0: it sounds to me like you're you're saying that the the best thing for personalized medicine to move forward would be to collect a lot more data about individuals.
2: I'd say that's an approach. Okay. I'd say there's two ways. Either keep on hacking at the genetics, keep on learning more because there's a ton of stuff that is being You know, knowledge which is being generated about how things work, but it's a very slow process. And then another strategy would be, well, let's throw a bunch of other data types at it. Like what? Um so like sensor data from like smartwatches, you know, a microbiome from your toilet.
0: Let me ask you this, though. If I had – if I was a billionaire, like let's say I have $20 billion and I'm like I don't care about anything else. I just want about my health. I want to live as long as I possibly can. If I went ahead and hired an entire lab and a whole entire research facility, kind of like your work and multiple other people, to work just on my genome, would I be able to achieve more health right now with the current state of affairs, just throwing money and resources at it? Or do we need to learn from a large population sample?
2: So the founder of iCarbonx, that Chinese company, their vision. <laughs> he's a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, their founder is a really famous uh, scientist, and I, I mean, I don't know if he's a billionaire, but he did exactly that. He wanted to digitize himself, and iCarbonx is all about digitizing your footprint, so Everything that about you. you can you can learn you can, and you can look at you know other people um, who are like similar to you who are further along you know the path of life, and they took specific, you know, decisions, and those decisions are tied to health outcomes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the the vision there is is to completely digitize everyone, and just to collect a massive amount of data, and then hopefully but the computational tools will. will it sounds like
0: though you still need multiple sample sets. You can't. I mean, I, I the question I guess I'm asking about the personalized aspect is. Is there knowledge to be gained about one person's genome with enough people paying attention to that one person to actually help that one person? Or is it all about sample size and knowledge? Because it sounds to me like it's the latter, and therefore it's very much like traditional medicine in the sense that, well, most people that you know get treatment for this cancer, this is the outcome depending on what you do. I and mean, that's how we normally make decisions around medicine. So is it different with personalized medicine?
2: Yeah, it's, it's I think you're right on the second point that really we need to collect a massive amount of data because what's missing there is with one person is that you don't really have any understanding of what causes what um, because you don't – it's impossible to get – I don't know if you know the concept of like a ground truth.
0: Well, tell us what ground truth.
2: If you get a massive amount of data – I mean, it's all achieved through statistics – there's okay. nothing. There's nothing more than that. You have a p-value that is that is okay. good enough. Where, gotcha. where um, and and that you just need many, many, many people. Um,
1: it sounds like what you're saying is you can't have a control when you're dealing with one person's genome, but you can collectively create this ground truth or this control through a large population. Mm-hmm. So,
0: okay, then then why is it called personalized medicine? It seems redundant in some sense. Like pretty much all the medicine I've ever dealt with is personal. Doctor talks to me, right? And that doctor might be making decisions based off a large history, a large corpus of medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, So what you're just talking about is gathering that medical knowledge a little faster with machine learning. It sounds like it's still the same type of medicine.
2: I see what you mean. Um, if you think about doctors, what do they really? You know, I guess they give you a personal touch in the office. That's really important. Um, when we're thinking about how healthcare is going to look in the future, and I'm actually, you know, very interested in that as well. Um, that I don't think that's going to go away. But what else comes out of the doctor is they they usually give you a prescription. Mm-hmm. But that prescription is. Um, for everyone. So, you know, your you know your name is maybe on the bottle, um, but that's the same drug that everyone um, is, is getting. Uh, in, in like a personalized world, um, and this is a field specifically called pharmacogenomics, um, your pill will actually be a real unique pill. So that that pill- Created that, the, for
0: my genome or whatever. It,
2: exactly. Be custom-made. Okay. Made to fit. Are we doing that yet? No.
0: Okay. So that's, personalized medicine is this field that will emerge where Brian and I have the same pen cap disease, but I get a slightly different treatment that he does, and mm. both of us get healthy.
1: Mm-hmm. So instead of one drug, which is seventy percent effective across all the Brian's and Lyles, mm-hmm. we end up with uh, individual drugs that are tweaked to work better for each Brian and Lyle.
0: Okay, but we're not
1: really sense. so
0: when do we get there?
2: Well, I think that you know the promise of because what do we really want? we what do we want to be? You know, young forever. That's yes. kind of the goal, right? I'd like to be
0: young forever. I'd like to be young until I die.
1: No, I want to be healthy until I die. <laughs> doesn't that, doesn't young mean that? Sure. Okay. Sure, I guess so. All right. Maybe not. <laughs> My last name's Young, so I guess I yeah. <laughs>
0: Brian wins. <laughs> Case closed.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. There you go. So,
2: th- so I- I'd say that we're kind of far off uh, at um, achieving that. Promise, and I think it's going to be just achieved through more research, gathering more data, trying different approaches. Um, but but I don't see an end in sight in terms of you know th- there are companies that are really targeting aging in particular, mm-hmm. um, and the field as a whole is mainly looking at disease. Um, but one other thing that I think is kind of shocking, uh, you know, living in the U.S., a place where you know you have the highest end, um, you know you know researchers, schools, uh, the health system itself. Is, from what I understand, very inefficient, um, and uh, you know I see that I think forty percent of healthcare spend in the U.S. is actually wasted. Yeah,
0: um, administration and, overhead and you yeah. know
2: yeah those kind of things as well as just bad, you know I guess a, a bad decision to to take um and and something that I think will happen before personalized medicine, is that the US healthcare system will go from being you know, one of the ones where, if you look at how much we spend on it and what we get out of it, maybe one of the worst in the developed world, will actually end up perhaps having the very best one. Why will that happen?
0: Why do you think that's? Why do we think we're on the road to do that? Because, of course, that seems like a political thing, and I don't have a lot of faith in politics right now.
2: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, we had you know we had Obama, who obviously put a lot of effort into trying sure. to trying to get this and fix this problem, and, and I don't think the solution is going to come from government. Um, and I think it's going to come from industry. I mean, this is how kind of in this country, how we do the, you know, the really most uh, innovative, uh, great stuff. Is, it usually comes out of industry.
1: So if you don't believe in politics, maybe you believe in econo- e- economics?
2: Let's
0: hope so. What do you what are you seeing in the medical field that, that thinks makes you think that that might occur? Or you just – because one of the things, your, your, your caveat is that we'll see that before we see personalized medicine. Yes. That just might mean that personal medicine is a long ways away. So what do you see that's hopeful right now? Please share that with us.
2: So I See one, a lot of uh, small companies popping up, uh, solving a lot of different problems in in healthcare. But also, and and this is what I put a lot of my faith in, is the large corporations, in particular um, Amazon. Uh, I don't know if, if you guys have read about this, but there's Amazon, uh, Berkshire, Hathaway, and Chase, who, from I guess my understanding, are just sort of fed up with paying for all this healthcare for their employees. And really having it be like a huge drain, very expensive. So, you know, with like a good kind of, I guess, like entrepreneurial or techie mindset, they're like, hey, we're just going to do it ourselves. Um, so they, they're they starting this initiative that is going to hopefully reduce uh, the amount of waste in, mm-hmm. in the system. And they're totally backed up, or at least I think their approach is going to be how to route patients to the best healthcare decisions uh, for them. And, and that to you means the field you're in, basically. Basically. I mean, I think I kind of straddle both personalized health as well as population yeah. health. So this is what I'm talking about now, sort of like population health management. Yeah. Um, and I mean, from what I've seen in this one really interesting approach that i actually have a, you know i sort of think has a great chance is if you look at any industry like you look at um legal industry uh it's it's kind of it's a place where there's a lot of cost for 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 the person and there's like a lot of importance like you really care about it and you have in this industry you have lawyers this kind of a professional emerges to help guide you along the mm-hmm. way there's no professional like that in healthcare. Um, who's going to like help, like hold your hand and take you to the best decision. That's you not know. the doctor? That's well, not your primary care physician? Well, yeah, you, that, was the, think. Uh, that was the idea. But, you know, it turns out the primary care physician is actually like he spends his time, like he's overloaded yeah. in terms of seeing as many patients as possible. He's not healer making your... And
0: he or she, of course, is also doing those, some, those diagnos- this early diagnosis and trying to pass you off to an expert. Um, so it seems in some way that person's is responsible. For that. But you're saying that they're Too burdened? Why? Because their cost is too high. I mean, how could you structure it differently so there was a person that was doing that that wasn't overburdened?
2: So I, I, I think what we may see is the emergence of this new player in the healthcare system, which is you could think of it as you know you could see them as like a personal assistant for healthcare or like a care advocate, Mm -hmm. but someone who a doula for your health, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. someone who yeah, someone who's like kind of like a, a lawyer for your health, but someone who is going to. Be a human, so uh, be able to you know have the relationship with you, um, and also understand what the outcomes look like. Because often, actually, in healthcare, a great outcome for a physician's perspective is not exactly that for the patient um so example well uh let's say for example you you know you're like an old person and you break your wrist and the doctor's like okay well let's just like you know let's just like put a like a steel rod in there and that'll fix it you'll have no more problems so it's like a great outcome their wrist is totally secure now it's like really great um but you know from the the patient's perspective it's like i I can't bend my wrist now and this sucks yeah it's a horrible outcome for me
0: or like five years from now chronic um pain yeah, which of course isn't part of the original problem, right? The doctor's like, "Well, that person was fixed."
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's like an opening of a new issue, but it's yeah. like not connected. It's, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's totally ridiculous.
2: So, if you had this like care advocate who's there, who's going to guide you to like really the next. Best option for you because whenever you have a problem, you have you're going to have like like realistic like hundreds of solutions you could possibly implement. You know, I don't know if you you have something you know, like a cancer, you could potentially go to a specialist in Romania. I mean, it's just like you have a lot of options for yeah. you, um, and whatever route you take, it's going to be associated to a specific outcome. Yeah. In healthcare right now, we're not really tracking what those outcomes are, and we're definitely not routing people using technology. The doctor is going to refer you. It's going to be part of his, his network. And, and you're totally right, Lyle. I mean, that's what that's what we're kind of doing now. We're, we're counting on primary care to be kind of like superheroes who are not only diagnosing and seeing as many patients as possible, but they're also like telling you the exact best next step to do. Um, but the way I see it, and, and I think maybe uh, could be a project for some of these larger companies, but is to have this new actor who's this new care advocate, but who so who's a person who has a relationship with you who and that is important for tracking information mm-hmm. so knowing like what the outcome is and and getting to know what the problem is too so you'll have that person but they should be augmented by technology sure so you know ideally they start this from scratch And they measure things correctly.
0: Are you sure this would be a person, a human being,
2: and not just an algorithm? I think it needs to be a person. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be a person just so that... um, Because as as you said, you know, healthcare is something that's very personal. Yeah. Um, And people need to have that person to talk to. And I don't think we're... You know, we may get to a point where we're totally happy talking to um, a machine. Um, I actually recently downloaded this AI... Uh, app that is like a like a chat bot, but who's meant to like make you feel great about yourself and stuff. It's How like it do. was it named Lisa? Uh, <laughs> I think I got to name it myself. Um, but so, hey, yeah, so.
0: It- you brought up that these large tech companies are coming together to try to solve this this pain point, which of course is their price point for the medication for the medical insurance for their employees. And sure, that that they will be able to attack something big, just like the railroad tycoons were able to cover the the world with steel. Um, the side effects we get, there are downsides of having large corporations do that kind of thing. The monopolies that, that emerge, sure, they're really you know, <laughs> highly efficient. But there are actually also the, the lack of um, the society being in control of that is kind of dangerous. So I grant you I think you're totally right on that and there is potential downsides from that. I think, I think Google for years has kind of had this weird tenuous place of, you know, if we just had all the medical information, we could probably really help with the same like you know privacy concerns. So it seems to me this has always been kind of the, the barrier of usefulness versus intrusiveness – I think you're probably right that a corporation is going to take the first step because of their incentive to do that. Um, I hope it's done correctly to not take advantage of people too badly, like firing employees that are going to get sick in four years. Because, of course, that would be cheaper too. And yeah. there wouldn't be anything illegal about it.
2: And if we start, you know, depending on a large corporation to manage all of our health care and they go to business, I guess we're all dead. Yeah, um, <laughs> But luckily, I, um, from what I see from Amazon, is they're sort of setting up like an independent Company that's outside of their own, and I think Google has done a similar thing. Um, I, I think their biggest sort of move towards personalized health is with DeepMind. Yeah, that they've sort of carefully um, kept as something uh, as a piece they're working on. Ex- ex- exactly, like with l- less
0: political flair, right? yes they don't want to be private. They want to be public about it. It's, it's interesting to me that you're that the uh, that we're they're kind of doing this in secret at the same time on the side. It seems to be. Um, I also think it's fascinating that these large corporations get to a point where they're like, well, what problems do we solve? I remember Facebook years ago we were like, well, we're not growing as fast anymore. Oh, that's because people don't have access to the internet. Well, let's make sure more people more more of the planet has access to the internet. It seems like such a weird way to compensate for your your business not growing. You know, like, oh, well, where can we cut costs? Medical insurance. Let's make everybody healthier. Okay, let's do that. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty awesome. Well, Robert, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we re- conclude today's uh, show?
2: No, yeah, I, I think I think uh, I, I covered all my bases.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, UCLA Health in general. How long have you been there? Actually, and what's it like, yeah,
2: yeah? No, I I would I'd love to talk about that. So you know, we're really optimistic at UCLA. Um, it's 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 going well. It's going well. We believe in personalized medicine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but. As, you know, as, as I said, it's like a, it's like a long journey yeah. um, towards it, and it's great to talk about what could be, what is how, but I, I guess I would love to talk about a little bit about what's actually we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah. Talk about some of your projects. Um, so one project that we did recently was um, uh, within the surgery setting. So um, the state of the art today is you are um, about to enter surgery, and you get a, um, a risk score before you go under. And this is, um, uh, I think, I believe it's called a, like a PSA score. And it's done by the physician. And it is meant to just assess what your risk is. Okay. Um, this and- is
0: like the thing that thing anytime you go under the knife, there's, a, there's this risk. Yes. And so you're saying that they actually go through a checklist with a person like, well, their blood pressure is this or this age is this. And they kind of go through all these lists. And then from that, they go, oh, this is the percentage that that idea yeah is that is that specific per hospital
2: no you know i think it's like a pretty common standard standard widespread widespread score and it's meant to help like patient decision making like should i get surgery or not this is what my risk is um so we have that but one thing is sort of like intuitively is you'd say well whilst you're under does your risk change um And so what we did is uh, sort of retrofitted this operating room with a ton of sensors uh, that tracks about 30 different uh, data points, um, really basic stuff. But everything basically that we could capture about the patient experience while they're under. So you have like temperature, heart rate, um, everything that's possibly measurable. Um, Do this, create a big data set. Of how many people went through this room? So right now I like the data set is is growing indefinitely, but there's like I think around like two hundred thousand well, two hundred thousand patients.
0: More than one operating theater that's like this. Then
2: there's a few. Okay. There's a few. <laughs> that's a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, but all I
0: guess I guess operating theaters they're so expensive. You want to keep them full all the time, right? So you you basically always have it's being cleaned or it's it's being used. They basically
2: run around the clock. Yeah. with yeah. with with operations. Um, so the,
0: with this two hundred thousand sensing of of going through all these surgeries, what are you finding? What what uh, new
2: problems emerge so it's it's a great data set and what we really wanted to do was predict the odds basically use that data combined with what their pre-surgery score was Mm -hmm. and then take it that as a baseline and look at how that score changes Throughout the operation, so as I said, we have these two hundred thousand people, and we have outcomes for all of those people. So that's not our just, training set—not
0: just death or survival, but like health outcomes after the fact. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, that's exactly. a good training set.
2: Exactly. So excellent training set, and it's it's growing all the time. You know, it may even be at like three hundred thousand now. Um, and so then we make predictions of you know try to keep something really clear and practical. But it is what are the odds that the patient relapses within twelve hours? Because that's the most useful thing for us. Um, because then we'll know, okay, well, we should keep them in a hospital bed, you know, very near the OR in case they need to go back. Or, oof, like it went super smooth, we can even send them home in a cab, you know. But
0: definitely don't send them home if if this yeah. number doesn't look good. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's an example of... Is that already being used? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you've saved lives with your data. Well, getting things to... I guess I guess I shouldn't say that. It is being used in the sense that it is being recorded. Um, is it being used to make decisions in healthcare at UCLA right now? Um, I believe no, but soon, really, really soon. Yeah,
0: you need to be able to prove the model works in with new
2: clean data as well, yeah. right? You, gotta, you know, it's I hard think, to do this, right? Like we 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 proved it already, but but <laughs> but you but know, we'll really, we, we A- didn't A- publish A- enough. A- <laughs> <laughs> we need to publish like three papers before they say, "Okay, like, yeah." Okay,
0: how many people in research around medicine are in the space that you're in? where, well, we know some good outcomes, we could use it right now, but we're not using it now. That, that lag seems really frustrating. If you're in the medical field, you're like, wow, if this was implemented, we'd save 14% more people or something like that, right? 14% less people would would go back into surgery 20 12 hours later, whatever that number would be, right? Yeah. It seems to me that there's that kind of studies are happening everywhere. Yes. And the implementation drag on that yes. is kind of a problem. It seems like it's an ethical issue too, right? Like, if we know, if you know the right outcome, shouldn't you be doing something about it? I mean, what's your role?
2: Yeah, uh, I t- I totally agree with you. you. We have this burden, which is to show that it's best practice, and the only way to do that is like, it, it's a really interesting idea, though, because like, how do you actually implement things in healthcare? The strategy we find that works best is that you do it in one operating room, you expand it to more operating rooms. And you keep
0: on looking at the results as much as possible. Yes.
2: And then you just keep on growing it. And if you work, if you do this within a system like UCLA that actually, you know, has a big network of hospitals, you can grow it really big. So if we can manage to actually have it live operating over an extended period of time across all of UC operating rooms, that, is the best way to do it. Like, you really have to start small. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you're within an organization like UCLA, that's the best sort of...
0: And in fact, you know, even though you're pretty sure this is a good idea, it, it is also possible that people can make a mistake and then you implement something that's worse, and that would be tragic. I recall, a, I think a classic study in in medicine has to do with thyroid size in the neck. And so you, a whole bunch of uh, children were checked with their. and I, I, maybe if you've heard this story or not, but I'll, I'll kind of summarize it. The general idea was a whole bunch of children were checked on thyroid size when they died. Um, and so they checked all these children, they got these rates, and they figured out the, the size of thyroid that's appropriate. And then years later, they used that number to say this is a, a healthy thyroid size, and they found all these kids had thyroids, are way too big. So they started irradiating the thyroid to, to reduce it, to cause the symptom to uh, improve, and they did this for years. The problem was that the children, the sample set they got to set the 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 right thyroid size were all malnutrition children. So they were actually unhealthy, and that was, and they some of them died because of their their malnutrition. And so you were basically radiating healthy thyroids because you thought that that wasn't the right size. So it's it's very bad to get this wrong. So I get the idea of grow it slowly and check
2: the correlation causation problem that's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly, and that that problem was also relevant to the way we even developed the algorithm to make these predictions because like we were looking at at one point where we were considering using different methods one which is what we ended up using is a neural network that only gives predictions so we can't look inside that network and understand what is causal Mm -hmm. or what is driving these bad results like that that would be great there's other models you can do like like linear mixed models in machine learning where you can are much less powerful in terms of prediction but you can tease sort of the meaning yeah exactly so like our big objective first was make a prediction that just like, you know, gives us results in that sense. But l- what if we could also learn something brand new, like this drug combined with this? you know variation style, and, sure. yeah exactly or this combined with you know uh, I, I don't know glucose at this time during the operation you know causes bad outcomes or like a, a new drug interaction that always causes bad outcomes which can be just like a, a new rule and like that's real discovery of
0: are, are the type of drugs that patients are receiving during this surgery part of your sample set absolutely yeah uh, really interesting so but a predictive model it sounds like if you don't if you have a predictive model that has no insight to share then it's it's very much like intuition in the sense that they You just have to trust it or not trust it, right? I mean, you trust it because it's mathematic Mm -hmm. and it's been predictive over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. But if you have no rational reason, like what what the actual reason is, it feels much more like just a really smart doctor having intuition.
1: Yeah. And and you can't. You can't scale that. You can't export that. You can only export the methodology to another population with the same type of operating theater and the same type of procedures. Well, well, the the point is, you you can't simply take what you've learned from your population. You have to export the methodology so it can be done in another population to find out what works for that population. Oh, interesting.
2: Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, if at UCLA operating room, as I said, we're usually dealing with Caucasian you know, European ancestry people, can we bring that into a hospital in Africa? Like maybe y- definitely you don't not. know. I don't know. Right. Yeah, you got to be yeah. careful with that. You'd have sure.
1: to not start from ground zero, but you'd have to start with the same methodology you, you built up. <laughs> that's kind of depressing, isn't it? That that these large models are based off of
0: their – I mean, I guess that's true anywhere. I mean, if I if I had a, a way of healing people that worked only for people that were 6'4", and I tried to do it somewhere else, then I'm going to have a problem. Yeah, okay. That kind of makes sense. Okay, so that's one example. You're using, theater, you're using surgery, theater, detection stuff that's not genome-based stuff at all so you're doing no. analysis at different levels
2: yes it's it's funny the line between personalized medicine Where does it start what does yeah. it really mean um does it also mean computational medicine because that's essentially what i was talking about before it
0: seems like computational medicine is where we are right now yeah we're not really and is personalized computational yet.
2: personalized I, I i don't know that's
0: fascinating i have a a, a talk i've done a couple years in a row now at ucsc for a <laughs> film program A <laughs> friend of mine's a film professor and uh And it's about personalization. Because, you know, I work at Netflix. We're sitting right now at Netflix. And we talk about the personalized experience of the user viewing their videos that they choose from. We call that personalization. But, of course, there's no person involved in the personalization. And it used to be at one time, I'll get into my talk a little bit, that personalized meant that somebody, a human being interacted with you. When you get a haircut, that's a personalized experience, right? When you go and buy something that a machine has stamped your your name on, well, it's personalized to you, but it's not a person that was never involved. So that definition's very strange. But I think um, – what, what's the term you just used a second ago? Algorithmic or – Computational. Computational. Computational medicine. It seems like it's a better – it's another way of saying science-based medicine, right?
2: Yeah. Another word that's used is precision medicine.
0: I like that because then it doesn't matter if it's personalized or not, if it's precision. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Robert, thanks for reaching out through email and saying, hey, I come, to, it's come up sometimes. You want to talk about this sometime? Anybody else that wants to chat about their expertise, like Robert, and come to Los Gatos and walk around the Netflix office and get a soda or whatever um, and talk on Geekspeak, let me know. Uh, our email is geeks at geekspeak.org. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Al. It was great to come on here with you guys. It was awesome. Awesome.